This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your site for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing, Monica? Pretty good. I managed to avoid some huge spiders on my way over, so... That's good. Meet me in Erebor. We'll go find the Arkenstone. How do I put that into Google Maps? (laughs) How do I spell it? That's what I'm really concerned about right now. Suri, where is the Arkenstone? This is part two of episode number 76 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Go away. Go go listen to part one. Uh, if this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, basically this is the program on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one again this is part two so if you don't want us to spoil the hobbit the desolation of smaug stop listening right now and go check out part one of this episode or read the book or read the book yeah you could you could do that too uh, as always you can subscribe to us on itunes and stitcher and email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com you can also call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509 uh, before we get started I do want to say, by the time this episode is released, we will also have released a special bonus episode containing an interview with uh, my good friend Gareth Higgins, who was on uh, last week to discuss Dallas Buyers Club. And you should really do yourself a favor and check out both our episode on Dallas Buyers Club and our interview with Gareth. Uh, I don't know about you, Monica, but I thought that it was a really, really great conversation about movies and criticism and and just a lot of food for thought i mean i was taking notes i also not this is the first time that i met him so i let you guys mostly talk but i was just transcribing a little bit of what he said because <laughs> he yeah. made some great suggestions on just like reading material and movies to watch and just the project that he's been working on that's now into a new book Yes, he's he's a wonderful guy. He's the one of the main people that inspired me to study film. So it's all his fault. It's all his fault, basically. Yeah, if, if you're listening every week and you're like, damn it, Andrew, blame him. <laughs> That's bad. They've been hearing you a lot now. <laughs> yeah, definitely go check out uh, that, that conversation with Gareth Higgins. And be sure to buy his, his new book, Cinematic States. It's a, it's a really, really great read. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's let's move on. Let's talk The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. Here's a clip. You have nothing to fear. Tell us what you know, and I will set you free. You had orders to kill them. Why? What is Thorin Oakenshield to you? The dwarf Rant will never be king. King? There is no king under the mountain, nor will there ever be. None would dare enter Erebor whilst the dragon lives. You know nothing. Your world will burn. What are you talking about? Speak! Now time has come again. My master serves the one. Do you understand now, Elfling? Death is upon you. The flames of war are upon you. 
Well, Monica, where do you want to begin in our discussion of the desolation of Smaug? We can talk more about Smaug. Okay. I'm good with that. Smaug was cool. That was the highlight of the movie. I will say, the, the everything with Smaug, I was wondering in the back of my mind throughout most of that final sequence, why doesn't Smaug just eat him? <laughs> He's got to play with his food. Like, Smaug seems to be talking a lot. and I'm All and bad I, guys do that. All bad guys do that. They could not be bad guys if they just take action. Well, there's a point in the conversation when it, it seems like he's kind of tired of talking to Bilbo and, you know, he he's not going to let Bilbo dissuade him from eating him. Yeah. And yet for some reason he doesn't just, like, lunge and attack. And I was trying to figure out, like, is his eyesight not good? Is, he, is his sense of smell all wrong? Is he just, like, narrowly missing Bilbo each time? Because he keeps getting really close to Bilbo, but never actually, like, coming out to, to kill him. And I was just like, what exactly is going on? Maybe it can be another form of him, like, torturing Bilbo. I guess so. I guess so. More evidence of playing with his food. Yeah. Such bad manners, that dragon. Also, speaking of that final sequence, uh, since, since we're talking spoilers, did he grab the Arkenstone? You know, I totally lost track of the Arkenstone. I realized that after I was leaving, I was like, who the hell has it? Did Thorin get it, like, on the side? No. Did uh, Bilbo pocket it and we just didn't see it? They never show Bilbo picking up the Arkenstone. Yeah. And then he just kind of runs off to go meet Thorin, and there's that moment where Thorin stops him and is like, give me the stone, and Bilbo won't do yeah, it. Yeah, because he doesn't have it. Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, did he just leave it? Did he chicken out? Or did, did he actually manage to grab it mm-hmm. before Smaug breathed fire at him? So I'm, I'm not sure. I'm assuming that that will be revealed in the beginning of film three. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> One of the many things that w- was not answered or, or was left unfinished <laughs> in this film. Does Keeley live? <laughs> yes, Keeley lives. Oh, no, man. That was real close. I feel like that one was answered because he survives and he has a vision of Tariel and tells her that he loves her. So I, I got the impression he totally, oh, he totally And now she totally is into him. Well, now. <laughs> no? You don't no, think no, no. so? Actually, Wait, I mean, okay. that, I, they totally put that in there for a reason. She's going to end up with a guy. It would explain why Legolas then hates Gimli so much. Well, what did you think of that whole love triangle and everything with Tariel, this new character created just for the film? So when I kind of introduced her, I said, like, oh, she flushes out some of the guys, introduces some conflict. And I kind of think, in an extended sort of way, she's just there to create some sort of extra drama between the guys. I also think, like, Legolas isn't in the actual book the hobbit this is so, this is another like callback for like hey guys yes. remember this um which the movie's littered with and jackson is in his right to you know do that for the people you know who've only seen the movies and not read the book but yeah i really think that unfortunately she's more of an extension of the group that she's given I, I i really liked her a lot i i think she was a great addition she makes it interesting but i feel like the thought process behind that was to you know break up the sausage fest in order for you know some romance to happen because in the other in the other lord of the rings you have aragon and Arwen. yeah you've got aragorn and arwen in, in lord of the rings aragorn yeah you're right in in the hobbit there are no female characters so they needed some diversity diversity meaning love interest 
I don't know if that's necessarily what they were thinking. I think maybe possibly they just It's going to happen. Right, it's going to happen, but It's it's so hard to have gonna happen. But they've explicitly said in interviews, yeah, there were no female characters. We we needed a, a female character. And I think that that's great. Like the books are from the what? This book specifically is from is it the 20s or 30s? I, 30s? Or the 40s? I think. Now that, that, you know, gender equality was a big, you know, issue of that time for male authors. Well, I, I actually really liked the editions because, as we talked about a little bit in, in part one, there's not a lot of depth to these characters. And any time you can give any of them some sort of extra conflict outside of, hey, we're going to wait on this quest. Mm-hmm. I think it, it that's a good thing. It did feel a little forced to me at times, the fact that... She just meets Keely and like immediately they have a connection. Yeah, right? She's like this hardcore guard and then all of a sudden, because he makes googly eyes at her. Right. Oh, damn. I'm going to get that. And he's a dwarf, which I would think that there would automatically be some resistance to that if, if she's been raised to not trust dwarves or whatever. Yeah. So like immediately, though. They're into each other. And and that felt a little bit forced to me. But again, I was willing to go with it just because it was like, oh, finally, well, this isn't you. something yeah. else. So so that was good. Overall, I felt like these characters were a lot more fun than they were in the first film. There's a great shot during the barrel scene, the chase mm-hmm. scene down the river, where you've got the dwarf with the, with the uh, reddish beard just rolling in the barrel. Mm-hmm. on the side and everything and, and killing a lot of orcs and it's all done in one take and it's a yeah. re- it's a really really cool shot and just little moments like that to give the elves their own little moment their own little bit of personality I thought worked really well dwarves dwarves do not mix the two and and also there's this this character bard mm-hmm. who's a, a human and I, I gotta be honest Monica I don't remember the book the Hobbit at all. Yeah, I think that when I read it, I was in middle school. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember nothing about it. I'm assuming this guy was in the book, but I don't remember. I don't think they had the big socio-political underpinnings. <laughs> I get the feeling that, that that this was added to, again, extend that scene a little bit more. And, make, and this one is when an extension actually worked, if that's the case. You're, you're talking about the political situation of Lake Town? Yeah. I don't feel like it was that fleshed out in the book, or at least I don't remember it so. I, I have no idea. I don't remember anything from the book. But I liked how you had this this new guy, Bard, and again, they give him his own conflict as well, where he wants to finish what his father started. Yeah. Everyone's got beefs that their father started. <laughs> right. Either their father or their grandfather. Yeah. Those things worked for me. I liked that they were trying to flesh out some of these characters and, and give them a little bit more to do my main problem was again it ends <laughs> and there's, no, there's no real conclusion no to any of i don't want it to end <laughs> at the end of the film legolas is going after that one evil orc, orc commander yeah his name his name is bulg and i did not pick this up during the film but according to wikipedia apparently he is azog's son all right <laughs> did you pick that up at all who Azog, the the white orc commander from the first film. From the first film, okay. Yeah, the guy who who fights Gandalf at the end. No, they should have. They should have, like, I don't know, made a white strip of hair or something for him, so I could say, "Ooh, genetics." Put it in the dialogue. 
Bulg, my son, I trust you to go take care of this for me or whatever. I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> but according to Wikipedia, they are related. And that does feed into that whole theme of, again, fathers and sons, <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah, there we go. There is beef to be settled. <laughs> False to the sons. But anyway, at the end of the film, Legolas is going after Bulg. Keely and Tariel are apparently still alive. Gandalf is imprisoned by Sauron. For some reason, who doesn't kill? Another one who wants to play with his food? Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Because, again, I don't recall any of that from the book. And I think this might be stuff that Peter Jackson took from the Silmarillion and other source material and and other books Mm -hmm. by Tolkien. Apparently, it it is part of the canon. I had read that in the book, all it says that Gandalf pieces and then he shows up later on. So this is him fleshing out, like... When he leaves them, this is his whole side adventure. You mean, so in the book, Gandalf just leaves and comes back? we don't follow Gandalf. Okay. These are the missing chapters, Andrew. I kind of like that, though. I liked everything with Sauron and how it does seem to be foreshadowing the Lord of the Rings. Of course it's going to be Sauron, yeah. The moment they were like, some other name, I knew exactly. Nah, nah, his name's Sauron. I'm not even going to bother learning this guy's name. But getting back to stuff that they were trying to do with the characters... Okay, what is up with Bilbo in the ring? Because there's a moment when they're fighting the spiders when mm-hmm. the ring does seem to corrupt him and he kind of goes crazy killing the spider because he's afraid that it's that something's going to happen to the ring. Oh, because the, the spider creature baby or something almost took it. Right. He drops the ring and then the spider almost touches it or something. And so he just yeah. goes crazy. And they never go back to that. And that seemed kind of weird to me. Like, they, they threw that in there to acknowledge that, the I guess, the ring is starting to grow in power. Yeah, but then they don't give him another moment. Right. And then at the end, when he puts on the ring with Smaug, uh, there's the brief flash of Sauron's eye. Yeah, when uh, he says precious. Right. So, so I was just trying to figure out, are they just putting this in there to tie it into the Lord of the Rings? Or is there actually some character thing with Bilbo that they're trying to explore also it seems like bilbo is spending a lot more time already with the ring on than frodo ever did am i wrong on this no no you're you're totally right because it would be like minutes and poor little elijah wood would have the biggest scared look on his face yeah you're right and, and in the first film an unexpected journey he keeps that thing on for a long time with Gollum. And he did so again with this one right and the implication what what i just assumed is that sauron is not at the height of his power yet so Sauron oh, doesn't theory. quite yet have that strong connection with the ring where he can see where it is at all times. Yeah, that's a, that's a better theory than what I had. I was just kind of like, hmm, how does that work? That's why I was wondering, like, is that in there to show that Sauron is growing in power, to show that the ring is starting to become more corruptive, or is it somehow supposed to tie into Bilbo and his character? Also, is it just me... Or is the Arkenstone basically the ring as well? It's going to be the ring for Thorin. Like, it's going to corrupt him. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Like, it was a th- it created so much greed in his grandfather that he attracted the attention of Smaug. Well, see, that's what seems weird to me. Like, okay, is it just that it's bright and shiny, and so if you look at it, you get greedy? Or is it actually like the ring? Like, some sort of evil magic or something that, that is able to corrupt people? Maybe it's something that we find out in part three. 
I was wondering because there's that moment, there's all this debate about whether Thorin will be like his grandfather and become corrupted mm-hmm. by the Arkenstone. And I was just kind of thinking, well, does the Arkenstone have that kind of power? What's its deal? Yeah, what's going on there? They, they never really explain it. And then at the end, when he confronts Bilbo, and it's like, give me the stone! And he has that look in his eye, kind of like Sean Bean did <laughs> in Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Like, give me the ring. I was just kind of thinking, are they are they related? Is is the Arkenstone like the ring's cousin? <laughs> They're actually in the same periodic table. Yeah, is that what's going on here? Or were they like forged in the same <laughs> in the same <laughs> fire or something <laughs> by the same person? I, I, don't, I don't know. know. Let's get a Middle Earth chemist out here. Tell us what's up. That was just really weird to me. And again, it's one of those things that they just it just happens and then they don't return to it. Yeah. As a result, I feel like no character in this movie really goes through a concrete arc of any sort. There's not really a beginning, a middle, and an end for any of the characters. Mm-hmm. There kind of was for Bilbo in the first one, yeah. but there's there's nothing here in this one. Wait, what's the character arc for Bilbo in the first one? That he was good and then kind of turns evil? In An Unexpected Journey, there's that whole arc of Bilbo is, you know, he kind of wants to oh, stay home. Oh, Cat. And he doesn't, he's not fully committed to this mission and then by the end of the film he is and also by the end of the film he's kind of proven himself so the other dwarves have learned to respect him and are happy that he's there and that's the kind of small little arc that's in the first film it's a weak one but it's there and in this movie there's nothing like that yeah he's not really in the movie itself that much because he's got to share screen time with so many different stories it's much more of an ensemble piece Kind of like the the original trilogy, which I, I liked. I mean, yeah, in the original trilogy... Frodo is still, like, pretty much the centerpiece. Aragorn is probably the guy who gets second place, and then Gandalf. I mean, everything hangs on yeah. Frodo. But yeah, you do have everything going on with, like, Merry and Pippin, and Legolas and Gimli, and Aragorn, and, and, and you've got a bunch of other things happening around that that take up... I would say at least as much screen time, uh, I feel like, as everything with Frodo. It just it seems like there's a definite center. Right. Whereas this one, not so much. Well, in The Desolation of Smaug, I feel like, yeah, everything with the dwarves is the center. Well, yeah, and then there's a sequences where Bilbo just disappear from, because he pieces out with the ring. That's true. That's true. I think that's the difference, is because Frodo can't just disappear when he feels like it, or when he's threatened, he's got to deal with it. And here, I think there's two instances. It's the spiders, and then there's the wood elves that Frodo, or Frodo, that Bilbo, you know, uses the ring. Okay, that's interesting. You you bring up Bilbo constantly disappearing. That's something I kind of felt like it's in danger of becoming a crutch. Mm. And that was a main problem with the an unexpected journey. In an unexpected journey, there are multiple times where it looks like everyone's about to die, and then suddenly Gandalf <laughs> shows up and saves them. Like he does. Yeah, he just comes to the rescue, yeah. and everything's okay. And in this movie, I felt like there were moments when they were on the verge of doing that with, with Bilbo, where, oh no, if they get in trouble, Bilbo just has to put on the ring, and then he can save the day. Appropriate, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I was a little bit concerned that that might start to get redundant 
after a while because I did because in an unexpected journey, especially on my rewatch, it did become a little bit redundant to see Gandalf showing up all the time. <laughs> How are we gonna get out of this one? Just wait for Gandalf. It'll be okay. <laughs> Cut out the wizard signal. It'll save us all. So if Bilbo can use the ring with no consequences, that does run the risk of almost making him kind of like a superhero who can save everybody when necessary just by becoming invisible. Yeah. And it does get redundant. And Well, hopefully Peter Jackson has a different idea of how to save people in the third one. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe the Arkansas has a turn. Maybe so. Or, or maybe because Sauron is now gathering power, Bilbo won't be able to use the ring as much or, or something. I, I, yeah. I don't and know. And then it's back to Gandalf. Yeah. I, I want to ask you real quick just about the look of the movie. Yeah. Because the Hobbit films, to me, even though there are moments in them where I can definitely see Peter Jackson's hand at work, mm-hmm. like that moment I mentioned earlier on in the, uh, the chase down the river, uh, there's also a, some really cool shots during the final confrontation with Smaug. Mm-hmm. There's one shot that really stood out to me was where Thorin briefly kind of falls down this cavern. And he's like hanging onto some chains mm-hmm. and Smaug is like trying to come up behind him from below and, and fight him. And just the way the camera moves in that scene felt really, really well done to me. And it was definitely... Peter Jackson's handiwork. Can I say the handheld camera during the river scene was awful? Because that blown up to the big screen was kind of like, guys. Okay, I saw people on Twitter complaining about the GoPro camera footage during the river chase before I saw the film. And I was expecting it. And I don't... Did you see it, like, in IMAX, Monica, or on, like, a really big screen? No, I actually saw it on just a regular old screen. It was big. I saw it on a regular screen. It wasn't huge. It was average. I saw it in 3D. I guess that's the one difference. I did not see it in 3D. Did not see the 48 frames. I did not see it in 3D. I did not see it in 48 frames per second. I saw it on an average size screen. And honestly, I thought that the GoPro stuff was almost unnoticeable. And if I had not been looking for it because I had been told about it beforehand, I don't know that I would have noticed it. Man, it just, the whites look whiter. It looked like a digital camera. And it kind of looked like for a second that we shot back to, like, The Amazing Race or something. A reality show. Yeah, but but each time they did it, it was literally, it had to only be for a few frames each time. It was really yeah, quick. Yeah, it was for a few seconds. It was, it was very, very quick. But it took me out of the movie. It was like, the magic is gone. We're using shit from reality TV shows. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the way people built it up on Twitter, I was expecting, like, lengthy shots (laughs) from a GoPro camera on a barrel. (laughs) This is why you should stay away from the hype before you see the movie. And and that didn't happen. It was just really, really quick moments, and I thought it was fine, honestly. But, but, okay. But other than that, just visually, I don't know if it's because he's doing 48 frames per second or he's trying fancier 3D stuff or what, but visually, the Hobbit films feel very different from the Lord of the Rings films to me. Lord of the Rings feel more epic, more grandiose, more... I think they feel darker. I think they feel... You, are you talking cinematography-wise or thematic-wise? Mainly cinematography-wise. I think they. I think they're a little bit darker, and okay, the, I can see that. I, again, I, I mean, I haven't re- rewatched Lord of the Rings films recently, so yeah. maybe the CG doesn't hold up. 
but I feel like when I saw the Lord of the Rings in theaters, I was way more impressed with the CG effects in those movies than I am with the CG in the Hobbit films. It feels like there's a lot more computer effects in the Hobbit films. And they are. Like, maybe it's because, like, you've got the main orc who's mm-hmm. the major villain, and he seems to be largely computer-generated. Which wasn't the case back in 03 or so. Right, right. And, and so much of the Hobbit films feel like they came out of a computer to me. I don't really like it. It doesn't really connect with me as much. And I'm, I, was, I spent a lot of the film trying to f- figure out what is it about this visually that is not connecting with me the way the Lord of the Rings films did. So I, I'm just curious, like, have you noticed a big difference visually between the two trilogies? Yeah, whenever it's something close up and it looks like they're on a stage set, that's mm-hmm. usually when I kind of notice that they seem to be standing really close to each other, but like somehow the world behind them looks huge. Or so it looks right. way too overcompensating. Like, no, no, we're in a big place right now. And yeah, I'm always a fan of practical effects, but I, I will give them props on Smaug because that was I was really impressed with the d- design that went into him. Well, is that what it is, Monica? Is it just that there were more practical effects in the in the original? Well, like the orcs and stuff like that were all costume. Well, well, mostly right. like the people in the foreground were all costume, and then they filled in like the hordes with CGI. And now here you have all CGI creatures. Except for maybe like a stand-in or so. <laughs> well, I I believe there are actually actors playing those parts. Yeah, yeah. It looks like they went over them in post-production with CG effects. I mean, yeah, they could be doing the Andy Circus treatment. Right. Yeah. But yeah, something about the Hobbit films just feel they just feel way more fake to me than the Lord of the Rings. And I don't know if it's just I'm forgetting some of the bad CG in Lord of the Rings <laughs> or if there actually are significant differences in the way these two trilogies have been produced. Or is it maybe it's that The Hobbit has a bigger budget or, or I don't I don't know what the deal is, but something about it's different yeah. and I don't really like it as much. I haven't quite put my finger on the pulse of what's wrong with the recent Hobbit trilogy, but it's it doesn't seem... I don't know. I hate to say this, but it doesn't seem as magical as the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. Maybe we were younger. Maybe we were more naive. We could believe in that magic, Andrew. I just feel like something about that original trilogy, it felt more like an actual world as opposed to a video game. Mm, Maybe it's also the action sequences. Maybe so. Because um, if I remember correctly, it's not so much... There are chases and things like that, but there's a lot more war and siege and more like historical storming the castle right. type situations where this is a lot more action-y. Like the running down the river thing, I totally saw it as a video game. That, see, that it's weird that you say that because everything down the river, I feel like that was the most practical scene in the film effects-wise. And then they really rolled people down in a barrel? Yeah. But, like, the setup, I'm saying more of the staging. The fact that Legolas oh, sure. was using dwarves as, like, stepping stones. You could see that someone playing that on their PlayStation. Well, right. And see, that is when I think the films work best. And that's what I think the Lord of the Rings movies did really well, is that they managed to combine practical effects with the kind of fantastic video game action. 
And there there are some good moments like that in the film, like especially with Legolas, you know, skipping across the river, or there's a scene where he like decapitates a guy yeah. in a really creative way. So th- there are some nice moments like that that did remind me of the original trilogy because the original trilogy was filled with moments like that, whether it's, you know, the, what, what was either the two towers or return of the King where Legolas does that thing with the horse where he like remounts the horse from underneath it or something. I'm trying to remember, maybe it is return of the King. It's like the last big battle or so. Maybe so. There, there's a moment where like he has to quickly get on a horse. So he like goes underneath it. It's, it's a, cool little shot but yes i think the film looks the best when you can tell everything is practical but it's still pretty fantastic in terms of what the action is Mm -hmm. and when they rely on cgi to communicate that stuff that's when the movie just really kind of loses me yeah fortunately it's what it is wave of the future yeah so uh any other thoughts on the desolation of smaug no you I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think because uh, I'm like, it's a three-hour movie. Surely we have no, more no, to talk about. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say I'm wondering how this movie will play on repeat viewings once the third film has been released. I'm hoping better than the first one. I'm wondering if it'll flow well with the third film because... I did feel like at the end of this film, like this was this was only half the story. Yeah, it definitely feels like the the middle part of a series. I see. I don't even think it feels like the middle part. It, it feels like we're missing the bookends. I think the first film kind of is its own entity, okay. as I feel like a lot of these movies should mm-hmm. be. But then I feel like this film is just half of another of, of yeah. something else. I mean, it just leaves bigger. on such a big cliffhanger. Tune in next time. They introduce so many arcs that you can tell are going to get wrapped up, but aren't wrapped up now. Whether it's everything with uh, Keely and Tariel, or everything with uh, mm-hmm. Bard and his his arrow that he has to use to slay Smaug. Mm-hmm. Like there's these these they set the pieces in place, yeah. and then we're not going to get to see them come to fruition until the third film, which I feel like is very different from. The two towers. Oh, it's, it's certainly, yeah. I mean, each of those were a standalone book, though. Here we have one single book being turned into three right. films. So that's why I kind of understand as as to why it feels so much like the middle part of something, because it is. The first trilogy was, you know, one book, one movie, which is why you never really felt the lag either or felt stuffing. In fact, a lot of people were upset because so many different scenes were cut. And I remember, I think it's the second film or so peter jackson made the decision to omit the spiders and had them open instead in the third film because he knew that the harry potter chamber of secrets were gonna have big old spiders too yeah but see even though it's one book split into three an unexpected journey did manage to feel like its own thing at least you don't like an unexpected journey better than desolation of smog smog like you do Thor 1 and 2. No, overall, I think Smog is a more entertaining film. I just wish that it felt a little bit more complete. Mm. It does end on a complete cliffhanger for everyone involved in every story arc involved. And it's done on purpose, which I, I think it's a lot neater than, say, the Hunger Games ending, where it's Jennifer Lawrence looking steely away from the camera that's panning upwards. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as far as cliffhanger endings go... It's pretty well done, Mm -hmm. but we just haven't seen a film set in Middle Earth 
end that way before. So it, it kind of caught me off guard that it just, it's, it's not its own complete thing. Gotcha. It does just feel like one half of the story. So yeah, overall, I enjoyed it more than An Unexpected Journey. I still don't think it comes close to the original trilogy. And I'm not sure if that's just because the characters aren't as well fleshed out or because visually it feels so different but for whatever reason, I'm just I'm I I'm not I'm not nearly as invested as I was in the Hobbit films as I was in the uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Kind of make me curious to like go back and revisit them because I think they'll replay them now for over Christmas. ABC Family or one of those channels will in a marathon. I have the extended editions of Lord of the Rings on Blu-ray, and I haven't watched them yet. I need to rewatch them. So what is that, a 12-hour marathon or something? Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> all right. Party of one. <laughs> hey, Monica, after the third Hobbit film gets released, and that has its own extended edition, do you think there will be places that run like the 24-hour <laughs> Middle-Earth marathon? <laughs> oh, my God. They would totally do that. I mean, they just did the 12-hour marathon i believe somewhere near boston or so would you do it no i haven't seen the extended cuts you wouldn't do six extended lord of the rings films too much for you i'm so much more of the harry potter camp it's not even funny (laughs) i would be more willing to do it if an unexpected journey was better (laughs) you see that's the film you could sleep through in a marathon that's true. I'll skip the first film and just just come to the, the next five. Yeah, you, you pick a film to sacrifice. The cheat to uh, surviving a 24-hour or 12-hour movie marathon is that you pick a film on a 12-hour marathon or two films in a 24-hour marathon that if worse comes to worse and you're starting to fall asleep, you aim to fall asleep during this movie because either it's not as great or you've already seen it one reason or another. All right, it's the sacrificial lamb. Otherwise, keep going, you know, stay up all night. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yours would be on an unexpected journey. Yeah. As the pro who's done, I don't know how many movie marathons by now. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. One, one more thing I wanted to mention. They mention Gimli. They do. They give Gimli a shout out in Desolation of Smaug, and it's to Legolas. And that kind of weirded me out. That Legolas is older than Gimli? <laughs> well, I never really thought about it during Lord of the Rings, but I think the fact that Legolas met Gimli's father, mm-hmm. that kind of weirds me out a little bit. I don't know why. Why? It's a small world. I, I guess it is a small world, but the fact that Legolas kind of hated Gimli's father, but then he's going to go on to be good friends with Gimli. Well, they weren't at first, remember. That's true. But see, now I'm wondering, like, when Legolas met Gimli, did he remember that he had seen a picture of him as a baby? Oh. Did he remember meeting Gimli's father? That would be a, a weird conversation. Now I really want to watch these. <laughs> hey, by the way, man, I just remembered I met your father 60 years ago. Totally forgot. <laughs> I've seen your baby pictures. <laughs> That's a chat to have around the campfire on your way to Bordor. Dude, I've seen your baby pictures. That would be another thing for them to fight about. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of the Desolation of Smaug here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing the award-winning film, I'm sure, Anchorman 2, The Legend, continues. What do you think, Monica? Will Ferrell for Best Actor? Oh, man. Too early to call. I also still haven't seen it. <laughs> so I don't want to say anything. <laughs> Steve Carell for best supporting. Sorry, Jared Leto. Oh, my personal <laughs> vote, huh? 
You're going to go after me now. Sorry, Geraldino. Steve Carell wins the Oscar. No, Christina Applegate. Is she even in Anchorman 2? Yeah, she's like his wife. Okay, but is she really in it or is she just show up briefly? She better be in it. We'll see. All right, well, we would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. Uh, You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Briefing Room, and The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at MCASTIMovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at BOFCA.com. You can find some of my writing at MovieMezzanine.com and Pathios.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will uh, do my best to follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And the Lonely Mountain needs a friend. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah.